Well, hey, friends. Uh, welcome back to Mike's podcast. It is good to have you with us. And I've got my friend Sean Palmer with us. And Sean is a teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston. He's also an author, which is some of what we're going to get to talk to him about. But um, Sean, I was I was just thinking about this today. I first met you a few years ago at the North American Christian Convention. Yes, NACC back at the in NACC the class of its heyday. <laughs> Yeah, we it was the second to last one. It no yeah. longer exists. Um, but we both come out of the background of the Restoration Movement, which much of the church world has never heard of before. And um, on my end of it, we were the non-denominational independent Christian church who acted like a denomination in some ways with our own like yearly convention. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, when I would go to it, I rarely went to it, but when I would go to it, I would hang out outside of it, like with the people who would hang out outside of it. Like I just, I didn't go inside very often and would get to like meet people like you. So, um, so that's where we first met a few years ago. Right. Um, and, and I, then you, I was on the church of Christ side of that, which is yeah. even less of a non-denominational denomination because we didn't, you know, both of those, like, well, one, the Christian church, you guys had one mega, right. Conference every year in ACC. And we yeah. had all of these little big ones that were okay. usually associated with colleges. So like Abilene Christian would have like this thing called lectureship. Pepperdine would have Pepperdine Bible lectures. Now it's called Harbor, you know, Rochester College, David Lipscomb, OCU, Oklahoma Christian. Um, they would all have these things. And you just kind of went to usually the one where you went to school and they were kind of big gatherings. But you guys, I think I was actually better because you just said like, let's have one and have everybody come. And it felt much more like a conference. There were people there that um, I only saw at NACC, um, only have ever seen at NACC. Yeah. And it was well, how, cool. we were, we're glad that we got to be a part of the last three years. Of it. <laughs> how did you end up at NACC? Because, um, you know, that's crossing over boundaries there. Yeah. So I think several years after the big reconciliation between the two edges of the movement, well, there, you know, the restoration movement, for those of you who are listening and don't know, fractured into three different kind of non-denominational denominations with the Disciples of Christ being the most denominational of the denominations, like actually forming a denomination, but also the most uh, theologically progressive. Then there was the Christian church and churches of Christ, which people can talk about all the differences and splits of why one happened and this happened. But Christian churches tend to be Northern and Western and churches of Christ tend to be in the South. Um, I think there's a good argument to be made that that division came uh, along along with the Civil War. And so um, there had been this big, you know, like, let's get all back together. And uh, like a year before I went to my first NACC, um, I was nominated in that process of they were looking for 40 leaders under 40. Yeah, I didn't get nominated for that. <laughs> well, I tell people it was probably because it was my last year that I'd been, I was, you know, eligible. <laughs> yeah, Christian Standard Magazine did a thing called 40 Leaders Under 40. And I I made that list. And I think that kind of put me on the radar of some Christian churches. And some had me in to come and teach all their weekend. And uh, then uh, I was asked to do a keynote at NACC in Cincinnati. And that kind of launched the whole thing. We really connected with a lot of people there. Some great friends in ministry were made there. Um, people like Brian Jennings and uh, Caleb Kaltenbach, you, um, and those relationships have continued. I'm really grateful for them. 
Yeah, that's good. That's fun. Uh, I mean, I didn't bring you on here to give a little restoration history mm-hmm. lesson, but I love that. And um, I would love to hear sometime about your theory about the the breakup between Church of Christ and uh, and Independent Christian Church around the Civil War. Like that's, uh, um, we didn't care a lot about our history in the Christian Church, and so I, you probably know more about that stuff than I do. But I want to talk to you today because you had a book that recently came out. Yeah. Um, and it was called, it's called 40 days of being a three. And, um, it's sort of like a 40 day devotional journey for Enneagram threes. Is that a fair way to characterize it? Yeah. So InterVarsity Press is doing a series on, of Enneagram daily ref- reflections covering every Enneagram number. And they approached me about writing 40 days, like a daily reader for people who identify as Enneagram threes. And so a couple of things you have to know about to appreciate that one, you have to know about the Enneagram and kind of have an appreciation for that. And then you'd have to know where you identify on the Enneagram. And this is a book designed for Enneagram threes and the people who love them, work with them. And it's people ask me all the time, right? Like, I'm not a three. Should I read your book? And the answer obviously is yes. Um, not, should at least buy it. Yeah. <laughs> not because we're pushing books, but for those of your listeners who know the Enneagram, right? You know, first of all, that none of us are our number. Like we are, um, we house some aspect of all nine numbers. But even once you've identified what your number is, you are connected to at least five numbers. There's your core number of who you are. And then there are your wings, which we, you take energy from at different points in life. And then you have uh, numbers where you take on some of their behavior and stress and some of their behavior and security and both uh, what I believe to be the high side and low side of those numbers. So for a three, for instance, like, like me, like if, um, if you are a two or you're a four, I think this is the kind of book that you'd be interested in, but also if you're a six or a nine, because it's going to help you walk through and understand and hold aspects of who you are and who God created you to be that you might not get if you just um, spent time learning about your number and what that looks like. Yeah. So um, would you mind doing a little bit on like, what is the Enneagram in general? And like, you're here talking about like, you might be a nine or you might be a two or something like that. And my guess is that there's some people listening to this who have an idea of that they've delved into this a bit and that there's some people like that have just kind of heard about it. And somebody said to them that like that their friend at the church who also is into essential oils told them you're probably a two and they were weird. Like, so what, like, what is the Enneagram? How did, how did you get into it? The easiest way to think about it is the Enneagram is a personality typography um, it's a model of the human psyche, which m- people identify as one of nine core numbers. And there are lots of different places on um, the internet and different places you can go to find out about those numbers and about how any person would identify. So um, if you were, uh, and they're called, the, they're called by their numbers. So there's one's who are perfectionists, nines, who are helpers, and different teachers have different names for these. Um, Threes, who, where I am, are called uh, the achievers. Fours are known as the individualists. Five are the investigators. Six are loyalists. Sevens are enthusiasts or epicures. Eights are challengers. And nines are peacemakers. 
And what the Enneagram teaches is that every person um, has a core number. And that core number is based on motivations within you that produce what you do. So differently than other personality typographies that base themselves mostly on behaviors, the Enneagram is really about motivations because a lot of us can do and are motivated by very different things, but those motivations may produce the same kinds of behaviors. And what's great about the Enneagram is that it doesn't just tell you this is what you do, right? It says, this is why you do it. And here are avenues for you for growth. And that's really why something like the Daily Reader is really helpful, is that it points out both the beauty of your number and also the the dark side of what it is to be in your number and places where you can grow and develop and where you need to expand yourself. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm also a three. So I picked up your book and, and read through it as like a good practice for me to be reflective, not only of like the way that I'm like uniquely wired and the things that sort of drive me, but then also like the pitfalls of that. And even thinking through, I thought one of the things that was interesting was I think some of the way that you framed it were unique ways that threes need to grow, right? That it's not just like you need this content, but you actually need to be challenged in this kind of way. Right. And one of the things I was kind of curious about, um, when you think about like growth on your Enneagram number, that how helpful is it to lean into like what's natural for you versus how helpful is it to be pushed in areas that are less natural for you? Well, both are really important, and a lot of it depends on where you are in life. Like there are things that are inherent and natural to Enneagram 3s that are really great and beautiful things. So I think particularly, and there's a couple of entries about this in the book, too, about being cheerleaders. Yeah. Like 3s aren't just interested, as the, as the achiever, as the succeeder, we're not just interested in success and achievement for ourselves. We're also deeply interested in that kind of success and achievement for people that we love and who are close to us. And so what that produces is within us people who are natural cheerleaders, natural cheerleaders for our spouses, our kids, the people around us. And that's a really good thing that shouldn't be abandoned just because hmm. someone's named it. But that cheerleading also comes with a personal view about failure. Um that failure is really tough and crushing for threes in ways that it's not for everybody. It's not that everybody doesn't uh, experience failure and the sting of failure, but it means uh, it carries a different weight for us. And so one of the things I need to do as a three is learn to carry failure a little bit differently, but in so doing to not abandon that natural part of me that wants to root for other people. Yeah. So, um, I was remembering you were talking really early on my, it might even be like in the intro of your book, you mentioned having a guy in your life who will say the things that you need to hear, not just cheer for you. Mm -hmm. I think, I think his name was Don, if I remember right, maybe your counselor. Mm -hmm. And, um, and you talked about, you told a story about when you had signed a contract for one of your books Mm -hmm. and all the messages and texts and whatever that you're getting from people are like, this is awesome. I'm so proud of you. Way to go. And then Don says something different, right? Like Don asks you the question, if I remember right, something like, what will this, how will this affect your relationship with Rochelle and the kids? Was, it was something right. like that, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. I made, ta- great, ta- I made the great mistake of when I was moving from California to Texas, 
of driving across country because he wanted to stop in Arizona for spring training baseball game, which was awesome and fun. And everybody should do that if you're a baseball fan at some point in your life. But I made the mistake of making that long drive cross country with my spiritual director. Um, and that's always, that's a poor decision <laughs> because that's just hours and hours of your spiritual director asking you questions that you don't want to answer. Um, and that was one of those things, you know, he, when I, when I, um, talking about, he's like, well, how's that going to affect your relationship? Which as a three, you want to hear all the kudos for having reached this milestone and this achievement. And here's someone who is drawing you back to the things that not just them, but that you believe are central and core and important in your life and in the world. Yeah. Um, and it keeps you, it, it keep like that kind of question keeps you grounded in certain ways that are really helpful for threes because we really do believe problems with threes is that they really do believe that their image is them, that they are their image. And we need people to call us back to the reality that that's not the case. Hmm. So like at what point were you always this self-aware? Were you always able to recognize this within yourself? Or is there some point where you like something happened or what, like, was there some point where you began to grow an awareness? Cause I can see having somebody ask a question like that as a three and me just wanting to shut them down and just be like, that's not who I want in my life. I'm going to mute them on Twitter, not pay attention to them because they're not actually being helpful for me right now. The people I want to hear are the people are like, Mike, you're amazing. Everything you have to say is gold. And I just want to listen to that. Like what, at what point was it that you're like, I need to cultivate like this kind of voice in my life. It's necessary. That's a really great question. And I doubt that I'm all that self-aware either then or now, um, which is part of my work as a three is to realize that as a three, like human beings in general are capable of absolutely incredible self-denial and lying. Like we are lying to ourselves all the time. And as a mentor of mine once said, like we are all telling ourselves a story to live with ourselves, to make it easier to live with ourselves. Huh. That's good. Um, and so I have an incredible, um, I have an incredible ability for self-denial, but in terms of that level of self-awareness to whatever degree I have it, which probably isn't nearly as where it should be, is that I was fortunate in that the, the Enneagram, and I write about this in the book too, the Enneagram came to me after after some significant failures and law. Mm -hmm. And what that does for threes is it makes you come to terms with the fact that failure is real and unavoidable. And the great gift of failure for Enneagram threes is that once you have failed, especially if you're a public person, um, it is undeniable that that's what's happened. And so you have to come to grips with the fact that that can happen, that that's a reality of life and it's outside of your control and you're not ever going to be able to do all the things that you want about it. And you, there are some kinds of failures that you just have to sit in. And I don't think I would have been open. I probably would have muted them on Twitter and all of that. Yeah. If that hadn't happened previously, um, you know, uh, the sin of Enneagram threes is deceit. But the beauty of that is once a three sees something that is undeniable and comes to term with it, they can never not unsee it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I've told you this before, like I'm really just from afar fascinated by your parenting in different ways. And 
seems to me like you've got a great relationship with your wife, Rochelle, as well. How much are you bringing in? Like how much has Enneagram awareness affected the way that you parent or your relationship with your wife? How much are you bringing that into that space? Is it like in the back of your head? Is it like, like we're talking about these things openly? What does that look like for you guys? Uh, that's a great question because um, I write about the Enneagram some and am starting to do some teaching. I don't want to think of myself as a person who is just like super Enneagram aware all the time. And one of yeah. the people who you want to avoid at a dinner party because they're going to talk to you about the Enneagram. But at the same time, because my children are aware of the Enneagram and our churches as well. And like they have like month tonight, we're recording this on a Monday. So in just a few hours, like their student ministry group before their big group meeting at seven, they do an hour for whoever wants to come to talk about the Enneagram. And really? Yeah. So students, are, all of our students kind of have a sense of what their number is. And I, one of the reasons I actually got into it is because my oldest daughter had gotten so much into it and trying to explore and, and so we, um, we, we take it seriously. We don't think it's everything in our parenting, but it's been the most useful resource for our parenting at the same time. Okay. Um, because it helps us, which is the great gift of the Enneagram, is that it helps you have incredible grace for other people. Then hmm. you do realize that everybody's not me and they are working in a particular way because they feel like something has been lost and they are seeking love, affirmation, acceptance. And we want to meet them in that space. So my oldest daughter is, she, she is, she'll turn 17 next week. She thinks she's a one on the Enneagram. That informs us in how we go about dealing with her um, and how we go about engaging her. Our youngest daughter is 13. She cares a lot less <laughs> about the Enneagram. We think um, she's a seven. She might be a four. It's hard to tell. Sevens and fours as children are, are misnumbered often. So I want to be careful about that. Um, but it does give us a, some data points and saying, okay, this might be what's happening with one of the girls or what might be a better response. Um, but at the, at the end of the day, what it says is, okay, we think this is what's going on. It gives it. It's kind of like going to the doctor when they just start asking you questions. They don't know what's going on, but the more questions they ask with a hunch, it narrows the field. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And so you mentioned your oldest daughter. You said she thinks she's a one, mm -hmm. and then you said with your younger daughter, you said we think she's a um, a seven. Mm -hmm. And I'm curious how much because I know like we're not supposed to type other people, right? Like that's that's one of the things that we talk about a lot. We're not supposed to type other people. And even like with our kids, like there's this, like you kind of want to, you want to in some ways because you want to figure out who they are to figure out like, how do I best help them? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, like so much of the Enneagram is about self-discovery and figuring that out for yourself. How has that worked out with your kids? Have you like, have you guys kind of typed them a bit? Have you let them discover that process? What does that look like super practically? We have let them discover that process. Like um, I had Richard Rohr's book, The Enneagram in Christian Perspective, like sitting on my desk for like a year after I first came to the Enneagram. And it was actually my oldest daughter who picked it up and started reading it. And then she wanted to have conversations about it. And I was like, well, I, I need to be more informed <laughs> about this to, to have conversations with her. And that's when I started going a little bit more, uh, going a little bit deeper in that because she said, 
oh, I think I'm a one. And that really did explain a lot of things that we had experienced and some of the things that we had noticed with her. But it's her claiming that. And uh, we want to be really careful about that. Our youngest doesn't care enough about it to claim any of it, right? (laughs) And like, because it's just not the kind of thing that she's into. And so we don't, we don't say, well, she's a seven, so we should do this. But we do. And I like to think of the term, and I really want this to catch on. So help me with this, Mike. Okay. Okay. So here's my thing. I've said this uh, to a lot of people. Like, I don't think the Enneagram is a thing. I like to think of it as an energy. And so what I mean by that is I feel like my youngest daughter displays a lot of seven energy, right? Um, or that my my wife and my oldest daughter, they have a lot of one energy is the way we actually talk about it at home. Um, partly we do that because we don't want to give people the idea that there's a box that we're trying to put them in. Even yeah, though yeah. I feel like the Enneagram does the exact opposite than put people in a box. But I know why people re- re- uh, say that and um, frame it. People turn it into a box. Right, right. And like, I don't want to say, well, this is not very seven behavior, so she must not be a seven. Like, yeah. no, but that's like, energy is kind of like, just like in your house. Like at two in the morning, you're using a whole lot less than you might be at eight in the morning. Um, Okay. So we're trying to... Uh, our whole thing with parenting and the girls has been that we really wanted to respect them as people, as fully formed people, while also being very aware and sensitive to where they are on their journey as people. Like a seven-year-old child is seven, right? So we want to hold the reality that this is a fully formed person who is other than me. Like our children are not a combination of me and Rochelle, they are their a whole person mm. outside mm. of um, But at the same time, it's a seven-year-old whole person. And right. So they, we need to we need to hold that at the same time. And that has really guided so much of how we go about things is seeing our children as people. Um, and this is just, you know, I spent the first dozen years of in ministry as as a youth minister and working in churches with adolescents and with um, their parents taught me at least two things is that most family dysfunction and upset animosity hurt is caused by um, children being unable to see their parents as human beings and parents being unable to see their children as human beings. That's really good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that a lot. And honestly, that I feel like encapsulates some of the things that I've appreciated that I've that I've noticed you doing, that you post about, and even like we had you out here in Long Beach to do some stuff and spent just a little bit of time with you and your family and watching your guys' interaction. Um I feel like that simple sentence really encapsulates a lot of what I have experienced of you that I've appreciated from afar in the way that you're parenting your girls. 
Um, I well, would love to be totally to- wrong. I mean, like the 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 cake's not baked. As I just show, show people. <laughs> um, well, it was was it you or it was somebody I was talking to recently who said we've told our kids we're saving up and they have the choice to either go to college or to get counseling. Yeah, I told yeah that we'll, we'll that you college or counseling. You'll need both, <laughs> <laughs> but we're only paying for one. Right. <laughs> um, all right. So I I want to. Um, so your book is is 40 days on being a three it's sean palmer um i want to move on from the enneagram for a minute though sure because um there's all these other things that like that i've gotten to talk to you about over the past couple of years that i would love for people to get to listen in on a bit and the first is um you are a black pastor who finds yourself often in white spaces and i am a white pastor who has often found myself in white spaces. <laughs> and so one of the realizations that I've had through friendships with people like you is that um, I, I have to work incredibly hard to be intentional, to not be in white spaces. Mm-hmm. And so we have different kinds of experiences because like y- you are most often naturally in a lot of spaces where a lot of people aren't like you. Mm-hmm. I am most often most naturally in spaces with a lot of people who are like me. So what is something that you've had to contend with, work with? What is what is different about your experience that I wouldn't know because because I'm not as often in a predominant a space that's predominantly a different culture or ethnicity than me. So I would say um it's amazing to me how little people know about one another. And the lack of curiosity about that. And so one of the things that I've shared with many people is I I spend long periods of time in two places, or at least did before COVID. And one is at my barbershop and the other is at my gym. Now I want to give you context for both of those. So my barbershop is mostly minority people. So it's all black and brown people. And when you're there, you're usually there for a while. You, you know, um, even you can make it a point, you're still going to be there a minimum of an hour doing haircut and shave and all of that. But it's, it's mostly all minority people. Uh, my gym, I have, I've just been really blessed. Like I, I'm at this gym that's pretty, really, really nice and pretty high end. And some of the wealthiest people in Houston are members of that gym. Like it is, it is the rich, it's the rich people's gym, one of the two or three. So this is not like LA fit. It's got a, it's got a, the locker room is enormous and it's got a huge lounge that feels like you are at some super high end hotel in one part, you know, and all of that. And it's mostly conservative, quite frankly, um, older white guys in the, in the, in the locker room sitting around and some of them don't work out. They just come and hang out in the locker room. And if you you could, if you could be in this locker room, you would come and do that too. Um, And just overhearing conversations in both places um, with the view, with the perspective that I have of being weekly in all of those different kinds of spaces and with different kinds Mm -hmm. of people. Um, People don't know each other at all. And I think we all know that, that we don't know people outside of our social sphere and um, our race very well. What we don't know 
is the degree to which we don't know other people, which has some interesting vectors because in, on one level, most of us all really want the same things. We want to live in safe places, raise our kids, love our spouses, um, flourish financially and in terms of our health. Like those, we all have dreams, like those things are pretty universal. But having any sort of eye toward the motivation and the challenges of people outside of that group, it's almost none. And that's what's shocking. Um, But we all think we're experts in knowing what the other group is like and why. Yeah, yeah. And so it's ignorance, complete ignorance, coupled with unbridled hubris. And that's a dangerous combination. Um, This is going to sound really, I'm going to use this as a counter narrative. Um, I've had the opportunity every now and then to uh, pastor in a very intentional way with people who are high net worth individuals, right? And you would, you would think that that would be an easy thing to do. And a lot of people resent it. But when you sit down across table with some of these people, uh, what you realize is that they have, they have challenges because of their wealth and because of their influence that you would never imagine even existed. Right. Mm, mm, Yeah. Uh, And so that does not, I I don't call on anyone to feel sorry for those women and men for a a second. Like that's not what we're after. (laughs) What I wanted to try to highlight is like people are dealing with things and you don't have the first clue as to what like. And so a friend of mine works with high net worth individuals in the mental health field. And what we see in the mental health field is that they actually get worse results and worse care than middle-class people. Because even the practitioners look at them and go, you're wealthy. What do you have to be depressed about? And so the, the, the magnitude of the challenges are immense for all kinds of people. And there's very little empathy or sympathy for people outside of that group for those people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. So we don't know each other's experience as well. We don't know. We think we know better than what we actually know. Um, Let me ask you about like, so George, when George Floyd's death happens, Mm -hmm. when he's killed, um, we saw church leaders that you normally wouldn't expect to speak up starting to speak up like white evangelical church leaders and churches that were saying things on social media that were offering things in sermons at the time. We, we saw some things start to like seem like start to bubble up to the surface that we hadn't been seeing happen in those sorts of churches before. Um, and now we're several months removed from that, obviously, and we've had a really contentious election that had uh, racism as a part of it, obviously. And all, like, what? How do you feel about where the white evangelical church is in general, in terms of moving forward with whether you want to call it anti-racism or racial reconciliation? Um, where are we at? Yeah, I don't think the white evangelical churches are in a good place when it term comes to racial just, justice at all. Yeah. And that is because the white churches have failed 
to deal with whiteness as an entity in the universe. And there are a couple of reasons. So I would say to anyone who's really interested and invested in this, even if you think that I'm completely wrong, which you're fine to think, is to read Jamar Tisby's The Color of Compromise. Yep. And that gives you the, the, date, the historical data points and that multiple times um, throughout the history of America, there have been opportunities for the white church to seek justice and to act mercifully. And we've chosen, the white church has chosen not to. And so what we're seeing now isn't new. It's a continuation of what we've done before. But what we have done is we have heroitized what we did before. And so what I mean by that okay. is... Yeah, yeah, push into that. So what what we've done before is said, oh, like this was a good thing. And, and part of the problem with the American church is that we have failed to deal with history and how people worked in history and how the church responded to history. And so, like I said before, when we were talking about the Enneagram, everyone is telling a story about themselves um, to make themselves easier to live with. And part of the church of the American, a part of American history is based in the myth of the inherent goodness of white people. Hmm. And so because America by and large is a good country and by, and because it is majority white, then there must, then whiteness must be fundamentally good. And that ignores, we only tell part of our history. So it ignores huge parts of our history, especially where the church has compromised with the reigning powers to keep America an unjust society for black and brown people and for poor people. And until we deal with the reality of the history, the lie that we fail to come to terms with, then we'll see this perpetuated over and over and over again. So it's like with Louis Giglio right after George Floyd. Yes. Talking about um, slavery and white privilege. And he says, well, I, I like to think of it as white blessing. Well, like let's listen to the philosophy that gives rise to the word white blessing. It was a slavery. This is essentially his argument. Slavery was really bad, but because of it, America read white has been Mm -hmm. really blessed. Like you've been blessed by something that was really bad. We would never accept um, a child abuser saying, um, well, I was sexually frustrated, but because I abused this child, I was blessed by it because now I'm no longer sexually frustrated. Gosh. Right? Like we would never accept yeah. that. But that is the that is the living animating thought of many American Christians is it was bad, it wasn't that. And we always try to we always try to say things that were bad weren't as bad as possible, right? Mm-hmm. As, as mm-hmm. bad as they were. Like, well, the Irish were slaves too. Well, the comparison between Irish slavery and African-American slavery is not remotely in the ballpark of the same. Right. Um, Which try to say the civil rights movement was bad, but it wasn't that bad. Like it was better than slavery. So we, we fail as a country to deal with the reality of our history. And that history keeps coming up to bite us in the backside. And so even with Donald Trump's first run for election, Right. And this is not a statement about Trump. This is a statement about how we view ourselves as Americans. When people were asked, "Okay, make America great again. Why could no one articulate when America was great before? Why did people who wanted to make America great again, they couldn't articulate it because they know that when America was 
because they know they are heralding back to a time where there is a fundamental inequality in our system, even slavery. And they know that that was either bad or they can't say it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And so it's just like before. And so even people who might not be the most racially progressive people cannot articulate American history in a coherent Hmm. way that would be helpful to us moving forward with, we don't want to deal with the reality. So um, for those of us who want to keep moving forward and don't want this to be a blip, that was another blip on the radar that like we got excited about it for a few weeks. We marched and posted on our Instagram and felt good about it, but like that actually want to see racial justice um, happen and want to see the church play a significant role in that. Like, what are a couple of things that we could be doing to keep that on the on the forefront of our minds or in, in the ways that we're living? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that I think are really important. And I, I, I appreciate what you said about sort of being captive to the moment. And one of the things that we're dealing with now in really hurtful ways is racial justice tourism, where George mm-hmm. Floyd popped up and that was kind of all the news because we were all home with COVID and we couldn't avoid it. And now let's get back to our lives. And because, you know, 270 electors have decided that we'll have a different president, that everything's fine. Um, So that's going to be a temptation for a lot of people. So here's what I suggest. And I've worked with city managers and local city governments. I was recently on with the, what's it called? The League of Oregon Cities. So I'm working with lots of city governments, mayors and managers about how to move forward, forward in a civic way. But part of what has to happen is sort of baseline education about where we are um, and how we got here. The second thing that needs to happen is identification of where we are as people and organizations, particularly churches. So I've put together um, a path to racial justice, which helps organizations uh, figure out where they are as an organization on this journey. And then the next move in that, and I think this is where a lot of places are, maybe some of the organizations and groups that you work with, Mike, and maybe some of our listeners, is finding organizations who are actively doing the work and then partnering with them. And that's important for a number of reasons. One is because, especially for white evangelicals who have kind of seen the light on some of this, the easiest thing to do is what we always do. And I've been in churches for nearly 25 years full time is we want to create our own ministry, right? Or to, to deal with this or get together with our non-denomination denomination and create a ministry around. Yeah. This. yeah. And there are already people probably in your city, in your co- county and state who are doing this and you partner with them one because they know more of what they're doing but it also decenters you as white church leader hmm. um and so you come in and you put all in your systems in and you're going to spend 10 years learning what someone else already knows or what they learned 10 years ago and so you know groups like the NAACP for instance are going to carry a lot of baggage in some organizations and less so in others i don't know if that for you is a place where you want to start, but there are place there are people already in your community who are doing that, and you you enter in that conversation with a posture of listening and helping and saying yes where you can say yes, um, and then as you grow, um, you begin to listen to um, the people in your circle. So if you're a church leader, as you have been, Mike, and as I am now, like I need to I need to sit down and talk to the people in my community in a place where they hear 
where they can tell their stories and that will be heard in a relative degree of safety and openness where you can tell us like what you actually think, but it also comes down to leadership. If you're looking around your church, um, you're a nonprofit and the room is entirely one thing, whether that's white or male or black or whatever it is, like that room is not one who has a practice of listening. And we not listening in a way that produces change because if you had, the room would not look like it does now. And so the, the way the room looks is an indictment of your position already. Not like, and that's not going to be solved with, hey, let's, um, let's make sure that one of our African-American members is the next one appointed to our church board. If you got a church board of 10, for instance, um, you need to bring three or four African-Americans on your, on your board at one time. Because um, one, one is not going to get it done because the balance of influence still remains the same. And they know that. So, yeah. Um, those are places I would start. That's good. I was just, I was just thinking about a friend, a uh, conversation I had with a friend recently who works in leadership development at a major organization, really, really big. And they, um, she works right under the chief diversity officer. And so she's developing a, a leadership development program around like, how are we, how are we empowering people that we haven't been good at empowering? And what does that all look like? And I was, I was asking her a bunch of questions around this recently. And one of the things that she said to me, is, she goes, Mike, if you create a leadership team um, and you've got white people on it, if there are six people on the leadership team, four of them need to be non-white if you actually want to move towards anything that has meaningful um, conversations mm-hmm. with people of other races, like that was really um, shocking to me as a white man mm-hmm. who is used to having the balance of people sort of be more like me right. and, and to think like, Oh, I have to actually like move it to this other space in this other kind of way in order to, in order to decenter myself. And in order for other voices to be more prominent, yeah, it takes a it takes a good force. And so, what I've noticed in both church and um, civic world is that um, people who say they want diversity feel really good about themselves around seven to ten percent. Hmm. But when diversity starts to get around 20%, just 20%, um, that's when we start to hear the language of, uh, we need to do this or that, or they will start to take over, or they are starting to take over. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's just at 20%. So I don't think most folks are um, aware of how few voices actually are in the room that have power to change. And I don't think they're aware of how threatened people feel when the room starts to look a little bit different because it does begin to relativize strong voices. And it's like so many things like you, um, where I have um, um, started to just not work with groups who want a black face, but not black voices. Talk to me, what, what's the difference between wanting a black face and not a black voice? Um, I'll give you like a real example. Yeah. Um, so I was uh, asked to speak 
five or six years, three, four years ago at a, at a conference, not the one that you and I were talking about before, but a different one. That both you and I, I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. So if we want to throw it under yeah. the bus, we can. <laughs> no, but it wasn't that one. And um, it was kind of, I was, when I, when I got the invitation, I thought, well, it's kind of late for this sort of thing. Like this is usually done like a year ahead of time for this kind of con- uh, conference. And so um, I went over to the website and they had all the other keynote speakers already on there and they were all white, mm-hmm. but, but they were, but I, my hunch was proved correct because they had the next year's lineup of keynote speakers already on like, here's what's coming in year, whatever next was. And it had one African-American speaker and they had last year's website up and had one African-American speaker. And I thought, oh, here's what's happened. The black guy they had for this year just called them and told them he couldn't make it. And so they had to fill it with another black guy. Yeah. yeah. And clearly what they're doing is having one per year. And they're having they're having black preachers come who are going to say the stuff that white preachers would say. Right. Yeah. And that's wanting to have a black face, but not a black voice. Yeah. So like a church that um, wants to have diversity from the stage. So they hire a few people of color to be singers or musicians on their stage, Mm -hmm. but they don't actually have anybody of color in significant roles of leadership in the church. You can shape who the church is. Right. Right. Or, and those voices get marginalized when they do. Um, so that, and that, and that, that's pretty, there actually is though, Mike, I believe a ministry in that for some people okay. to, to be that voice. Uh, I think they will find like I did that, that feels pretty limiting and, and pretty boxed in. Um, but for a lot of groups, I understand why that's a first step. And I sure. don't, I don't mean to discount that or to cast aspersions on those people as if they're bad, but like, let's like, they're like, we will see things uh, differently. We will um, have a different experience of what, it, what is Christian in this moment. And that's usually hmm. what, the place that I find the rub between black and white Christians is what is, what is the Christian thing to do in this moment? And that's always a space for discerning. Um, but they are not often, they're not always rather, um, in line with each other. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, so we just got a couple of minutes left. So I want to ask you, you and I have been having, or a part of conversations about just thinking about like, where's the church headed in America? Like what's going on with the church landscape in America? We're seeing mass exodus from the white evangelical church, particularly amongst the younger generation. We're seeing, um, the rise of the nuns, of people who claim no religious affiliation whatsoever. We're seeing uh, the younger generation seeing the church as hypocritical, as um, overtly political, and by that they usually mean partisan, mm-hmm. not just that they care about politics, but that they have partisan blinders up, that um, that they're, they see no love for their LGBTQ friends and family members, and all sorts of like stuff within that. Um, what, what do you see happening in sort of the broader church? Um, um, 
it's really hard to tell, especially during COVID. And I'm blessed to be um, at a church where we have lots of young people and that we try our best to hold some things in tension because we have a lot of different views yeah. um, about all that. But my sense is that that's happening, but it's happening in this really funky way, at least where I am. And I'm in the South and I'm at a, a relatively large church in the South where the young people that I speak to, um, like what the church quote unquote teaches on some very, some of the issues that some people think are the most important issues, some that you highlighted. Um, sometimes like they don't care at all what I say from the stage about it. Right? Um, like they have come to a place of commitment. And what I see is beautiful about that is in many, many ways and many times, like they are, I would not necessarily like challenging church leadership um, in a confrontational way, but they are holding churches accountable to like, now you said this, um, now how does this line up with X, Y, and Z? And I think in healthy churches, that's happening. Um, I do think a lot of Christ progressive Christianity, um, I think that's largely an online phenomenon. Um, Interesting. What do you, what do you mean by that? Um, I, I think if you, I think there's, Twitter Christianity and there's actual like people who are actively <laughs> at the local church. Yeah. Um, and from my view, and this could be totally wrong because it is social media and you only get like a little sliver um, that a lot of that is just sort of uh, um, keyboard courage and hash division, like just hashtag activism. Um, but it does have a role to play in things. Um, so I don't know how much of it actually shows up daily, um, but there are some places where we're just going to have to do a better job. I don't know a person who isn't deeply committed in a relationship to someone in the LGBTQ plus community that they don't call daughter, son, friend, whatever. And so we're going to have to have better conversations about that and to hold that in a, in a better way. And I'm not telling anyone what convictions to come to, about that, but we're definitely going to have to talk about it and walk with it differently. Um, because for my daughter's generation and probably the generation of your, you know, your kids too, if you'd ask their friends, that's a settled question, right? Yep. And so we can come up with statements if we want to, that's just not where they live. And they are pretty, I think, pretty committed to that position. Um, yeah, I think, I think you're right. I mean, it's, I teach at a college adjunct and, and it's all, and it's Christian students who are going on to go into ministry and they're millennials mm -hmm. and 80% of millennial Christians, um, see it as a settled issue. Like it's not open for question in the same way it was amongst boomers and Xers. Yeah. They're in a different, they're in a different place. Now, without giving credence to the multifaceted sides of that argument, I could say this, like for I would say the average 16-year-old at a church in America, um, unless their church is just really like anti-LGBTQ plus stuff, like um, if I were to tell them the arguments that I heard as a young adult, they would look at me like I just said the earth was flat. Totally. Yep. Yeah. And I... 
I would guess that this is true of you also. I grew up in a church that taught that the earth is between six and 10,000 years old. And if you don't believe that, you don't believe the Bible's true. Mm-hmm. And so it's like things like that, that you and I had to work through aren't even questioned. Like my kids couldn't even fathom that being a conversation in the church today. Right. And like my, my, my daughters are really good Bible readers and they are really nuanced and savvy Bible readers. And they actually have a degree of sophistication around reading the Bible that people much, much, much older don't because they have at a very early age dealt with some of those questions. And so in some ways, I think it's a really healthy move for the church that we are wrestling through all this. But I do think for lots of different reasons, um, we are at a place, we might lose a generation to the church because of the way some very public Christians have handled their faith over the last 10 to 20 years. And part of that is to lay at the feet of the news media because neither the news media, the news media does not know what an evangelical is. And a lot of people who are on the news representing evangelicals don't know what an evangelical is. Uh, like Paula White isn't an evangelical. Yes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, like, and so when she's on the news, both claiming to be an evangelical and the news is claiming her as an evangelical, she had, she in very few ways fits the theological category of evangelicalism. And it's just kind of silly to call her one. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I 100% agree. Um, let me just ask you this as we wrap up here. Like um, several people who listen to this, I know they've gone through some sort of deconstruction of their faith. They're in the process of that. They're at the other side of that. And one of the conversations I've had with quite a few people who listen who listen to this podcast are the church that they're a part of as they've gone through their own deconstruction and reconstruction, as they've ended up on the other side of that, their church now feels shallow and trite to them. Mm-hmm. And they'll then say like, what do I do with this? Do I need to find another church? How do I exist in this place? Are there other churches for me? What kind of advice do you give to people who, who feel themselves in that sort of a spot? Well, some of that depends on what we mean by shallow and trite. I mean, and you know this as someone who is theologically educated, like what 80% of the stuff that you hear sometimes you could, you'd say, well, that's theologically uninformed. And you forget that the reason you think that is because you've got a lot of education around it. Sure. Um, And so part of it is realizing a few things. One is that some of it's theolog- is is trite and shallow because it just is because of what you know versus what the average person knows. And that's true of people who are high-level thinkers in our church, who read a lot of books, who are really investigate, who are just wired that way. Second, I would say that there are some folks in our churches who know very little about the Bible, who aren't very theologically sophisticated, um, but who are who draw deeply from the wells of prayer and time with God and who know things about God that you can't know through deconstruction, who have had a personal relationship with God that has shaped them in some profound and deep ways. And them holding the same theological position on certain issues as you is not indicative of who they are before God and their relationship with God. So, and I'll, then thirdly, I would say it depends on what it, what the triteness is around um, is this thing all that important or this battery of issues all that important to me being in fellowship with these people? Or is it kind of this is my theological hobby horse and I kind of wish my church was a little bit deeper about it, but that's not such a big deal. 
And then if it is, like, is this a place where I can live with these people? And part of that for folks who have been through theological deconstruction is the question, how long did it take me to get here? So I had a conversation with a great friend of mine. I love her to death about a church who, from my tradition, this was a big deal, who opened up some women's roles in public worship leading. And uh, she just felt like it wasn't enough because it did not include the preaching role and serving on in the eldership or on the board. And so we went back and forth about that because I was really excited about it for a couple of reasons that I thought was really healthy. And she just didn't think it was far enough. The Eva is the first step for this church. And so I finally asked her, well, how long did it take you to decide that you couldn't worship in a church where there wasn't full inclusion of women? And she said about 10 to a dozen years. Hmm. And I wanted to, and I said to her, you should give these people 10 to a dozen years. And part of the other side of deconstruction is being gracious enough to afford people the time it took you to deconstruct. Yeah, that's really good. Everybody's got to arrive where I am because I arrived here today. I mean, that is the most, that's one of the most theologically centering things that you can do. Um, so I think those are ways to begin that conversation. And sometimes there are issues like for me, like if I went to a church, right. And I heard a sermon and someone was saying like, we know for a fact that whites are superior to any other race. I was like, that's not a deconstruction question. Like we're just never coming back here ever again. (laughs) Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it really does matter. Like, what is this about? Not just that it is. That's really good. Sean, um, I always enjoy talking to you. I feel like, well, I, I only got to like a quarter of the questions I'd written down. I'd like, there's so many things I feel like I could talk to you about. Um, I really enjoyed this. Your book is 40 days on being a three. Um, and then where can people find you on the internets? Uh, so the easiest, best place to find me is just at Sean Palmer, S E A N P A L M E R on Twitter. And then you can find all the other things. I've got kind of the link tree there where you can find stuff. Um, but that's the easiest place to, um, find all of my musing on church life and, um, uh, professional basketball. Oh, and I had a friend mention to me today, I actually was saying to him that that I was recording this with you. And he goes, Oh, tell him that I appreciate his occasional tweets about um, about professional soccer. So (laughs) you got that going too. Um, And even though you root for a cheating baseball team. um, I'm really, really grateful for you. Thanks for hanging out today, Sean. Thanks for having me. And like Pete Rose said, about his ouster from baseball. Show me the evidence. Wow. MLB wow. all accusation and no evidence. Wow, we're going to we're going to we're going to leave it with that while we are in the midst of a um presidential election that's being contended for the same reason apparently. <laughs> so, you know, we'll put the Astros alongside uh and congratulations Trump's. to your congratulations to your Dodgers. So, I should say that. It was a good year. It was a good year. All right. Thanks, man. All right. Bye-bye. So as always, thanks, friends, for listening to Mike's podcast. Appreciate you listening. Uh, The ratings that you put up, I appreciate those. And you sharing this, I appreciate that as well. Till next time, grace and peace to you, friends.